Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. Yes, that could mean you too. The workouts have been designed to fit into your life so you can move when you can. The 15 minutes you can squeeze in before work. The 20 minutes you get to yourself while the baby naps. The half hour you can spare at lunch. There's a routine for you no matter what your day looks like. A reminder as well, this is included in your Mum Mia subscription. If you are a Mum Mia subscriber, you already have access to Move. Download the Move app and log in with your Mum Mia login. Head to move.mamamia.com.au and use code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. This week, a young woman filmed herself in the largest city in Myanmar, Yangon. She was showcasing her exercise dance routine. What she didn't realise is that in the background, she captured the exact moment a fleet of military vehicles descended on the capital to seize power from the democratically elected government. Myanmar could soon face international sanctions following a military coup to overthrow the government. The country's leader hasn't been seen or heard from since, with the United Nations meeting to discuss the case tonight. With the members of that government now in detention and the world calling for the democratic process to be upheld, what's happening to the woman who's been the symbolic personification of democracy in the country for so many years? Today, we look at the fate of Aung San Suu Kyi. That's the sound of thousands of citizens across Yangon, the largest city in Myanmar, protesting from their homes, banging pots and pans and hitting their car horns to show their anger at the military for seizing power from the democratically elected government. The military leaders say they believe the election was fraudulent, despite the party, led by de facto leader Aung San Suu Kyi, winning by a landslide. But this is not the first time Myanmar has been taken by force, and not always by those within it. Before Myanmar, the country sandwiched between China and India was called Burma. Its position between the two larger countries made it an important trade route, and because of that, it was a wealthy, self-sufficient nation. Its position also made it ethnically diverse, with the majority Bema, who are native to the region, followed by more than 130 other ethnicities living within the one country. While it did well in trade, it was largely an agricultural economy. In the early 1800s, the country was ruled by three kingdoms. One of those kingdoms, the Kombang dynasty, decided to expand their influence into the state of Assam in India. This region was close to Chittagong, which at the time was colonised by Britain. This expansion led to the First Anglo-Burmese War, which ran from 1824 to 1826. After an expensive campaign that cost many lives on both sides and a lot of money for Britain, the British unleashed their navy taking Rangoon, the largest city in Burma, without much resistance. Burma was forced to cede Assam and its other northern provinces. The next time these two powers would come to blows, it would be the British who would light the fuse. With their rise on the teak forests in Lower Burma and the port between Calcutta and Singapore, the Second Anglo-Burmese War erupted in 1852, Britain continuing until they occupied all of Lower Burma. In an attempt to keep the invaders out, the ruler of Upper Burma attempted to make his territory more receptive to foreign interests. But the Brits could not be stopped, initiating the Third Anglo-Burmese War 
that lasted a mere two weeks in 1885, Britain declaring the final region of Burma they hadn't already colonised a province of British India in 1886. In the decades that followed, a nationalist movement emerged alongside a new generation of Burmese leaders, some of whom had been educated in London. One of those leaders was Aung San, a politician and revolutionary. Aung San is the founder of the Myanmar Armed Forces and is considered to be the father of modern-day Myanmar, dedicated to ending British rule. During World War II, he joined the Japanese in fighting the British, and when Japan occupied Burma, he served as a minister of war. When Japan looked like they would be losing the fight, Aung San switched sides and merged his newly formed forces to fight the Japanese. After the war ended, he negotiated Burmese independence from Britain while serving as the fifth premier of the British Crown Colony of Burma. But he would never see his country free of imperial power. He was assassinated by his rivals, along with most of his cabinet, after victory in the 1947 general election. The country would be free of British rule just two months later. He left behind his only daughter, Aung San Suu Kyi. After gaining its independence, Burma began to once again rule in its own right, under the Burmese Independence Army as a democratic nation. But a coup just a few years later would see the country become a military dictatorship. Those who seized power claimed it was to save the country from disintegration. But really, it was the continuation of the struggle between the country's myriad of ethnic groups who've now been involved in one of the world's longest-running civil wars, the military junta would go on to rule for nearly 30 years under General Nguyen. Win. For several decades now, several ethnic armed groups have been fighting the country's armed forces, calling for self-determination, for independence, increased autonomy and the federalisation of the country. Many have died and human rights have been violated as parties attempt to seize power. In 1988, nationwide student protests resulted in General Nguyen being ousted and replaced with a new military regime, the State Peace and Development Council. During this time, though, Aung San's daughter, Aung San Suu Kyi, emerged as a national symbol for democracy, leading the country's largest opposition party, the National League for Democracy. Her party won the general election in 1990. However, the military junta refused to recognise the result, Instead, keeping Aung San Suu Kyi under house arrest, where she'd been since 1989 after returning to Burma and taking part in the 1988 mass demonstrations. She would remain under house arrest for a total of 15 years over a 21-year period, receiving a Nobel Peace Prize in that time for her work, which was accepted by her children. Political unrest continued until 2008, when the government, after a referendum, created a new constitution which included reforms that would lead to the release of thousands of political prisoners, including Aung San Suu Kyi. Her party, the NLD, attempted to make amendments to this constitution that would otherwise make Aung San Suu Kyi ineligible to become the country's president should her party win an election. Their amendments were rejected. Dr Charlotte Galloway is an Honorary Associate Professor at the Australian National University College of Arts and Social Sciences. Charlotte, how did Aung San Suu Kyi end up leading her party again if she can't constitutionally be the president? It is a complex system. Aung San Suu Kyi entered parliament in 2012 during a bylaw election. And then in 2015, when they had the full open elections, when her party, the NLD, did participate, and of course she was re-elected and the NLD won with a vast majority. Because she was such a strong figurehead, 
And of course, she's unable to be president or vice president under their constitutional rules. They created this special role as state councillor, which constitutionally doesn't actually have specific power, but effectively it runs like she is like a prime minister. So she's able to be placed in that role as a state leader, but constitutionally she does have no official power. I'm guessing that is very limiting and that she wouldn't have a lot of influence then if she's basically a figurehead, right? In that sense, yes. But in reality, the role of the state councillor is to give final approvals and they're able to make that happen through a sort of parliamentary approval process. And so long as all the other aspects of constitution are followed, and also it's really because she is effectively the leader of the NLD as a party. So she's seen as the person who's got them where they are, you know, established the democratic process in Myanmar and really became this sort of symbol and a very effective one to force them through into this transition of moving to full democracy. With so many different ethnic groups within Myanmar, is Aung San Suu Kyi seen as a leader that brings people together. I know there are some groups who obviously have issues with her, the Rohingya Muslims, for example, who are now living, you know, across the border in Bangladesh after the military moved on them. Is she seen as a good leader? Well, I have to say from a majority point of view, yes, because she's been re-elected and there's still a great deal of fondness for her in the country. And, you know, you only have to look on Facebook and see, you know, the sort of commentary that comes through in support of Aung San Suu Kyi. But, you know, Myanmar is a very complex place. You know, there's well over 100 different ethnic minorities, you know, recognised by the government. And, you know, there are many very real issues that are affecting them. So there is certainly local dissatisfaction in areas. But on the other hand, it's not necessarily directed at her because there were great strides made in terms of moving peace process forward with armed ethnic groups, getting them, you know, actually even meet around tables to try and work out some sort of peace process. But I think what we don't appreciate, as I said, just is the complexity of this arrangement, the diverse histories across Myanmar, the geography in Myanmar, you know, we've got hills down to the oceans, people in very isolated regions, people in central and upper and lower Myanmar. It's very hard to find someone who's going to be popular with everybody, that's for sure. So talk me through then how the November elections unfolded. Because of the issues leading up to the election, and of course the Rohingya issue being a prominent one internationally, and issues to do with the armed ethnic insurgencies that were sort of breaking out more often, particularly in um, Rakhine State, I think the international commentary was we certainly didn't expect the NLD to lose but wouldn't have been surprised if they'd lost some seats because there are an incredible number of new parties that have actually sprung up, you know, small parties and have been putting forward, you know, well-known local candidates to stand for election. So in a way, I think, you know, some of us were surprised that they got back with such an increased majority. So the events leading up to the election, in that sense, there was some dissatisfaction, not necessarily just with Aung San Suu Kyi personally, but also just with the pace of economic reform. I think there's been very high expectations on the country's development. And down at a sort of micro level, you know, people on the streets and what have you, they're expecting a great deal of changes in their lives. And while there has been great progress, for many, they feel it wasn't fast enough. 
The military's given a reason for this coup and they say it's because that November election was not free and fair. Is that really why the military's moved in? Look, I think it's a very convenient probably excuse. I mean, one of the problems, I suppose, or difficulties too with understanding the politics in Myanmar is historically there's been very little notion or, you know, idea of true sort of consensus or compromise agreements, you know, it tends to be one thing or another. And in the case of the coup, I think what probably was a surprise was the fact that the USDP, the party which essentially was an ex-military party, I think it was a real surprise they lost so many seats. So even when before, they still had people representing their party as government ministers and some very high profile people lost their seats in this election. So I think that actually caught people off guard, which is why it's actually taken this time for the coup to happen after the election, because it's sort of a realisation perhaps that they're really not very happy with having so little control over the social and economic development within Myanmar. I mean, look, this is really sort of my view. It's very hard to find information at the moment. But just speaking, like with many things in Myanmar, a lot of it's done through rumour networking and information we pick up. But there is not evidence of widespread election fraud. And I mean, the issue here is, too, there hasn't been much opportunity for international observers to participate in this process either. And that's a bit problematic, too. Do you think this will end in some kind of sanctions or some action taken against Myanmar if this coup continues? I'm certain it will. When I see the transition of, you know, what happened when sanctions were in place and, you know, the progress the country's made in the last 10 years, but it's very much in a very fragile development position and sanctions on Myanmar, depending on the nature of those sanctions, will really have such a negative effect on so many members of the general public, as unfortunately sanctions do. So unless they're specifically targeted towards military, I think sanctions They have to be very carefully thought through. So, Charlotte, what happens now? We're already seeing some protests from citizens from their homes, you know, beating pots and pans and beeping their car horns. Is that the extent of protest that they could possibly do right now? What would happen to them if they took to the streets and what's going to happen from here? I'm sure there will be some organised protests. However, I think we have to also remember how... There is still a really well-known and well-experienced fear of what happens with government protests and serious mistrust of the military. I mean, they have detained politicians, who I understand have now been told they can leave. Of course, Aung San Suu Kyi is still being detained. They've also gone around and arrested prominent people across the country who've been outspoken about government politics. So this is like a repeat for many people in Myanmar. This is a repeat of the past. And there is a real fear of what might happen if protests go forward. We have to remember too, you know, it's not like in other countries, Myanmar's military, they're the ones who are armed. You know, the civilian populace can't come up with arms, which is just as well, thankfully. But I'm sure they're trying to work out what to do in this situation. The situation is changing day by day in Myanmar right now. The military has declared a state of emergency that they say will remain in place for a year until free and fair elections can be held. Some of those who were detained earlier this week during the coup have been released, but leader Aung San Suu Kyi is still under arrest and her location at this time is unknown. Will she end up locked in her house like she was for so many years? That remains to be seen. But until then, the people of Myanmar protest in the safest way they can. 
That's the quickie for today. If you're keen to let us know what you think of the show, we'd love to hear it. You can send us feedback in your podcast app by rating and reviewing us. Good or bad, we read it all. This episode was produced by Siobhan Moran-McFarlane and myself, Claire Murphy, with audio production by Ian Camilleri. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.